Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of With Form Welcome. With Form Welcome is a show where we meet the makers behind the most beloved restaurants in New York City. Season two fo- is focusing on Asian American restaurateurs and chef owners. On episode two today, we have Lucas Sin. Lucas is the culinary director of Junza Kitchen. Junza Kitchen is a fast casual Chinese concept. Uh, they have three locations in New York City, the most recent being in Bryant Park. It actually started back in New Haven, Connecticut, where all of the founders met at Yale University. Lucas has a very interesting story that I wanted to highlight of his upbringing in Hong Kong. And uh, more than anything, we'll dive into actually different types of regional Chinese cooking and what authenticity means in such a crowded market such as New York. Without further ado, this is Lucas. And when I asked him about his relationship with food or where it all started, this is a story that he likes to tell. And usually what people like to hear is that my grandmother was a cook. Yeah. And she was a cook. She cooked in the mahjong parlor. Right. It's kind of sexy and cool. Truth is that she was a cook at the mahjong parlor because that's the only thing that she could do. And she ended up doing it her whole life. Yeah. And she's cooking for both the staff who worked at the mahjong parlor and the lazy you know, triad people maybe that sure. didn't want to get off, get up off the uh, mahjong table and they yeah. wanted to just eat while they're playing. Like that's the type of cooking she was doing. And, uh, I think in terms of the cooking, there's definitely a love for food that Hong Kong people have, have yeah. in their bones. So unlike most chefs, maybe that we all know of Lucas's story starts very, very early at the age of 16, where he actually ran a pop-up in an abandoned newspaper factory in Hong Kong. Um, and this is the story. To paint the picture, we're in a newspaper factory on the outskirts of kind of Hong Kong, Hong Kong Island. And a friend of a friend owned this space, which was a karaoke space for him. He also had a wine cellar and a semi-professional kitchen, whatever reason, nobody yeah. really knows. It's all attached together. And we kind of had met him and he floated the idea of, hey, I have this space, by the way. So the other day, a couple of days later, my dad and I are like sitting in a car, as you do, doing whatever we were doing, hanging out. And he said, what are you going to do with your last summer in Hong Kong before you go to college? And I said, I don't know. He said, why don't you open a restaurant? And I said, yeah, why don't we? And like, I wish I could say that I was so self-aware at the age of 16 that I had a sense of cuisine that I wanted to show the world, that I wanted to yeah. teach people about you know Chinese food the way I want to teach people about Chinese food today. But there wasn't really much of that. It was just, why don't we do this? It would be kind of fun. You can teach a couple of your friends how to hold three plates at once. You can teach a couple of your friends how to talk about wine. You can teach them how to start building a menu. Yeah. We did 13 courses. We called it Hong Kong cuisine because that's the only cuisine we knew. Not Cantonese cuisine, but the cuisine of Hong Kong. Right. Japanese, Western influences as well as Shanghainese, Cantonese, uh-huh. Taiwanese influences. And then we had the shuttle system where we had our teachers or... Uh, friends of friends or parents or whoever get on a shuttle bus. The shuttle bus would bring them to this newspaper factory. They would have no idea where they were. They'd go up to this random floor. It'd look kind of dark. They'd walk inside, and then we'd these kids would be serving them the 13 courses That's of wild. food. So when I learned about this story of him doing a pop-up when he was 16, the immediate next thought for me when I was looking up Lucas is, he probably went to CIA, right? And I couldn't be any more wrong. He actually went to Yale University for cognitive science. But even before that, uh, food was a big part of his life. And even though he didn't get the formal training until later, this is kind of where it started. To the extent that I never went to culinary school or had any former culinary education, absolutely I was self-taught. 
Yeah. But that doesn't mean that I didn't learn from uh, proper chefs and proper restaurants. Right. Um, up until that point, it was I knew my dad was the best cook in the world. It's the type of cooking where you open the refrigerator, whatever is inside, you throw them into you a the pot, best, and then it. that's just the best meal you've ever had in I your love life. That. You know. Um, so, but we traveled a lot. We went to places like Shanghai and Taiwan, and um, my dad was very important in encouraging me to ask people how they made things. Wow. When you're a kid, so the resistance is also that you don't. As a Cantonese kid growing up with a grandmother that cooked in the kitchen, you don't really want to work in the kitchen for the rest of your life. Right. Your grandma broke her back trying to get make sure that you wouldn't end up in the kitchen. Right. Um, but you also love food, so there are like these you know tensions there. For Lucas, even though there was this resistance there of getting into cooking and restaurants, he couldn't get away from it. So even at Yale, he spent all of his summers and winters working in restaurants, studying abroad, and getting exposed to food. Um, especially there was one country that I intrigued at, which was Japan. And he was he spent all of his summer breaks in Japan. There's one restaurant he ended up working at uh, called Kikunoi Honten, which is actually a three-mission star restaurant in Kyoto. I was very interested and fascinated by the fact that he had staged there and worked there. So I wanted to kind of ask him a little bit about that and also how it was like in school trying to balance that and his passion for food and cooking. Um, I knew that I liked cooking enough that I wanted to spend all of my weekends, all of my summers, all of my winters. I was on speed dial. Of, I went to school in New Haven, and there were a couple of New Haven chefs that had me on speed dial, and they would like call me on a Tuesday. Would, and sometimes it get excited. Like, Alice Waters is in, on campus, and I'm making her lunch. You want to wow. come help? And so That's w, yes. It was so cool to just be a part of like the restaurant scene while you were in college, Yeah. Um, especially in a small town like New Haven. And then I knew I wanted to get a little bit more um, rigorous, sort of like fine dining. I knew I wanted to go to Japan. My thought then was that the best food in the world is Japanese food. Right. So I should go to Japan to learn Japanese food. And the way you think about it is, who is the best person to learn this from? You ask them, will you teach me? Yeah. And if they say no, you go to the second best. Right. So eventually the first place I wanted to go to, or rather to dial back a little bit, I spent all of my summers in college in Japan. The first summer was cooking with Japanese grandmas. I just wanted to learn Japanese food. I love cooking. that. Yeah. It was so cool. I was learning the language. I was cooking with everybody's host moms, host grandmas. It was so fun. The second summer, uh, I was backpacking. So I had a bandana, a couple of knives, a backpack. I started in Tokyo. I had one job in Tokyo that lasted me about two weeks okay. to get enough Japanese kitchen lingo. And then after that, I was just backpacking. Wow. And I would stop in every major city between Tokyo and Nagasaki. I walked into restaurants, just I knocked on the doors, and yeah. I was like, yo, I love your food. Can I cook for you? Can I wash your dishes? And what was the response usually? The best response I ever got was, I live in a peach farm one and a half hours outside of Tokyo. Come out here. I will grow peaches with you and teach you Indian curry. <laughs> and we made tofu. We like milk, like we made milk soybeans. It was just the this whole process. This is like process. the wildest education the you wildest. can't get anywhere yeah, else. Yeah, because you're just getting really in touch with how, uh, you know, like... Your favorite mom and pop, mm. izakaya type ramen, yeah. soba places sure. were cooking, and that's the food that I really enjoyed. And that had a huge impact on the sort of like recklessness of cooking. That backpacking summer, I had met a couple of guys at Kikunoi Honten, a world's 50 best. Yeah, legendary. Um, legendary yeah. three star Michelin star. Yeah, yeah. maybe the best kaiseki, if not the most iconic kaiseki in Kyoto, sure. for sure. And that was the craziest culinary experience of all time. If you worked at that restaurant, your seniority was only based on how many years you worked there. So somebody who's worked there for 17 years is always going to be more senior than someone who's worked there for 15 years. For the first year you're there, first years, um, they only touch the 
clean fish, they clean vegetables, and they make staff meal. Right. They don't make any food that goes out to the guest. Right. Second year is you can touch vegetables, start cutting things. You start seasoning food your fifth year. Which You're is the kidding. Same year you start doing uh, sashimi and, and, and fish. Wow. So it's a really rigorous education. All of the cooks live at the restaurant in the dorm together. Uh, first, second, first and second years work roughly 7 a.m. to 1 a.m., which is the schedule I was on. And you sleep. You barely sleep. And then you work until lunch. You sleep for an hour and a half. You go back to do dinner. You try to run out, sneak out of the restaurant for beers. You come back, you sleep, you do it all again, seven days a week. And it was just so fulfilling to see these kids who had gone to culinary school want to work at this best restaurant in Kyoto. Right. They were welcoming me with open arms as the first Chinese person in this Japanese kitchen. And I mean, the good thing with uh, uh, Chef Murata is that he uh, had established a visa specifically for foreign cooks to learn at his restaurant. He's oh, one God. of the first people to really open his arms wow. to foreign chefs a big to learn from him. And speaking of uh, chef, he on the last day uh, he of my apprenticeship there, he called me in and we had this conversation. He told me about his own story. So he, as a young kid, knew that French food was the best food in the world. He went to France and he did his apprenticeship in France. Right. But it took him going all the way to to France, right? Therefore, giving up his chance to work at his father's restaurant okay. in Kyoto, to realize that he should actually think more deeply about the food that's already in his culture and in his bones. Fifty years ago, Japanese food was nowhere near as sort of top of the world as it, as is, it is now. now yeah. yeah, it's not as exquisite. People didn't think of it that way. Yeah, and he it took him leaving Japan to realize, oh, Japanese food is actually kind of great. We should really start. Figuring out how to really elevate it. And he, then he came back to Japan, took over his father's restaurant, and made Kikunoi what it is today. I'm in Japan doing what you did 50 years ago because now maybe Chinese food has its moment and we need to start thinking more deeply about what Chinese food is going to become and whether I want to participate in that journey. From Kikunoi, thinking about what the role culture story, cultural storytelling has to do with your food at every single level, I yeah. think is something that's very, very deep inside, like very deep um, inside of my budding culinary philosophy. Um, every single time you serve food to somebody that someone doesn't know, it's a chance to tell them a story. The question is how much of that story to tell and how to best tell that story. And even though today um, I run for Chinese fast casual restaurants, that doesn't mean that when you're eating a salad-like object, that you shouldn't have some degree of culinary under or cultural understanding yeah. of what you're eating. So I think that's really important for sure. The next thing I kind of want to tackle was it was two awards, right? Eater, Young Gun, Rising Star Chef, amazing. Like you're in a really great yeah, you. cast of chefs. Yeah. What what was that like? You know, getting those two awards and, and, and attending these shows. Well, and- first thing is shout out to my mom and my dad. Shout out to my girlfriend, Kayla, for nominating me for these awards, <laughs> believing in me and things like this. Um, but also, uh, it was really interesting because, as you said, these awards have been around for a while. Yeah. Um, but they usually are focused on fine dining chefs. Exactly. Especially, even up and coming fine exactly. dining chefs. Um, this is the first year where both organizations made it clear to me personally, but also during the awards, that um, they were paying more attention to number one cultural cooking or what, mm. what we might call ethnic, ethnic. or ethnic cooking, right. um, as well as cooking at scale. That's like mission-driven cooking. Right. Um, Eater, for example, uh, was very keen and made sure that we all signed a pledge to say that we're everybody in this group is working towards making the hospitality industry a better place Interesting. for all people. 
And uh, th- when I think of that, that's your employees, obviously, but also your customers yeah. and the people who cook in the restaurant and like, the, your suppliers and every single person. And I think it's really, we're super lucky that now is the time that we started doing what we're doing because people are paying attention. I think it's incredible that I get to hang out with some of my favorite chefs in the city cooking super fancy, really, really nice food. And I'm over here slinging like $12 noodles. <laughs> and they're like, hey, this tastes good. And you're like, thank you so much. <laughs> I never thought you'd th- we'd come to this day. So it's been a really good time. And I'm really excited that um, I get to be a part of this community of budding chefs who want to do something together. Yeah, It'd be really cool um, to start exploring those relationships between these restaurants and between these styles of cooking. Uh, my personal interest almost in addition to what we do at Junza is finding out what the connection between Chinese food and other cultures is. Right. So I've been doing these tasting menus at the restaurant called Chef's Table, and the premise there is always Chinese X something else. Right. And what I found over the last couple of years is whatever you put in that slot, something else, some, you can always make a tasting menu. You can always find something interesting. Chinese X Dominican cooking is... A really good example where there are inherent similarities between the two that I don't think many people have put together before. Yeah, like that, that's, the last, yeah that's the last. Yeah, that's the last. Yeah, and obviously there, but there are also confluences and overlapping immigration patterns you know, that are interesting to study and try to find dishes that can Represent help tell the story yeah. of exactly, um, or something more technical like Chinese ex vinegar, where you're looking at how Chinese vinegar making techniques have affected v- Korean and Japanese vinegar making techniques and vice versa. Fair. Yeah, so. Um, uh, whatever you pick in there, whatever you put into that slot, you always find something interesting to talk about and cook about. Yeah. And once you're in a community of chefs like Star Chefs or Eater, and you're cooking with somebody whose specialty is chocolate or somebody's specialty yeah. is bread, um, you can always find something interesting to figure out. Yeah. Because hopefully you can show that learning more about Chinese cuisine, just like learning more about any other cuisine, will make your own cooking better, will make your own food better. We've neglected the fact that Chinese food can have a positive influence on your own cuisine, whatever cuisine you're cooking, uh, for the last couple hundred years, I think. And now's the time to bring it back. Yeah. Now that Lucas has come full circle in his own right to continue to tell the narrative of Chinese cuisine and Chinese cooking, I wanted to ask him about Junza because I was wondering what the word meant and kind of the significance behind that name. Junza is a term that comes before Confucius, but Confucius definitely made it a big deal. Um, it's a person with integrity. It's somebody that you want to become and you strive to become. Got it. So it's kind of a philosophical context Got for something it. to aim for. Um, we were we came up on this name because early on when we were thinking about Jinza, uh, we kept bringing this idea up. Like if we were to build a restaurant like a Jinza, what, what would it be like? How would we be like a Jinza? And one of our advisors says, what's that word you guys keep saying? <laughs> and we're like, oh, it's Jinza. We said, you should just name the restaurant that. And I was like, whoa. Um, yeah, because if you start thinking Chinese fast casual like four years ago, the only reference point you have is Chipotle. Chipotle. So you go like, okay, chip, sh- chive. <laughs> <laughs> and then you're like, wait a minute, we should be building a restaurant that has a mission. You yeah. know? So that's how we ended up on Jinza. And um, a lot of people gave us flack for, oh, it's so difficult to pronounce. Nobody's ever going to remember it. Sure. I, for one, am very glad and happy that Jinza didn't end up being chive. <laughs> I think Jensen, looking back, is a really great name that reflects what they do in their mission statement. Uh, for those that don't know, Jinza is actually um, specializing in quote-unquote northern cuisine. 
And that could mean a lot of things, I think, because especially when you say Northern China, that means so many other subregions. So while I had Lucas on the show, I asked him if he could kind of break down and categorize different types of regional cooking in China for us. As a super diverse place with something like 22 provinces, um, there are a hundred ways to categorize the different regions of Chinese cuisine. Um, the m- simplest is four, which is kind of north, south, east, west. West, yeah. Um, uh, the other one, you can go eight, you can go 12, 16, whatever it is. Um, in the north, the primary uh, cuisine is based off of soybean paste mm. um, and the flour, some grains. Um, kind of think like Beijing and upwards, kind of like right. heartier food. In the south, obviously, is uh, primarily Cantonese cooking. Cantonese cooking is um, mostly based on fresh seafood, fresh vegetables, rice, just wok-style cooking. Very, a lot more simpler in terms of the seasoning because the produce is so good. So all of the technique is about highlighting the quality of the produce. Oh. In the east, it's mostly, think, um, around Shanghai area. So Jiangsu-style cuisine um, is uh, about technique. A lot of these are imperial dishes. So if you've seen a viral video of a tofu that's cut like a chrysanthemum bulb, so it looks like a flower, that's from uh, Su Cuisine, which is all about imperial, fancy, kind of like Royal high cuisine. technique. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, in the western side of things, obviously we have Sichuan. Sichuan itself has a huge, diverse place. Primarily nowadays, people think of it as spicy food, but also um, just very layered um, umami flavors or layering of different types of flavor profiles mm. um, over a... So re- relatively um, uh, diverse and abundant uh, space, uh, agricultural space. Okay. So those are the four primary yeah. kind of directions. Yeah. I think there are four new Chinese regional cuisines that are going to take over the world. What like my think? four favorite from Northeast, Southwest. So um, in the North, uh, I think uh, Dongbei style cuisine, which is Northeast cuisine, is traditionally known as peasant food. Um, Grains, corn, rice until very recently, um, and tiny, small sea, f- small fishes, about half the sizes in the south, but the same amount of nutrients because of the delta. So, in a province like Liaoning, you have what food that used to be thought of as just salty peasant food, and actually it is incredibly interesting and can be very much refined. Even in China, not enough people paid enough attention to northeastern Chinese cuisine. In the south, I think we all know about Cantonese food, the stir-fry yeah, stuff that everybody walk, likes yeah. and the dim sum and stuff. There's parts of the south um, in Qiujiao um, or Shantou, that Chaoshan region, that have also very delicate treatment of seafood. Um, we're talking things like raw pickled crab or very gentle braises in uh, soybean-based broths. Yeah. Very homey cooking, um, really gentle uh, uh treatment of beef and that sort of thing that right. I think is really, really special. And honestly, probably the source of a lot of Vietnamese cooking. So pho most likely has its regions in this area. area yeah. And so the idea is if you like pho, you have to like chao zhou cai. In the West, we have, uh, again, Sichuan. Everyone knows Sichuan cuisine, the spicy stuff. But there is a um, specific type of cuisine that's built around the clans that uh, used to transport salt. So it's called yanbang cai. So all these salt uh, uh, traders had their own style of cuisine around the Zigong area, which is just outside of Chengdu. And that cooking is sometimes spicy, not always spicy. Yeah. Um, things like 
think fresh green peppercorns, um, really delicate uses of broth, yeah. um, uh, rabbit, frog, interesting things like that, that yeah. are kind of everything you liked about Sichuan cuisine that isn't red. So I like that subversion of expectation. When we talk about regional cooking, and the reason why I'm so fascinated by it is because as a consumer, uh, as someone who goes out to eat in New York City, I'm seeing more of a proliferation of Chinese restaurants that are branding themselves as a specific region. They're, they're tying themselves down to a very uh, narrow uh, province, for example, as opposed to, hey, we're a Chinese restaurant. Nowadays, it's more like, hey, we're a Sichuan restaurant. Or you see... Uh, some of the bigger name projects I've opened up, like Dadong in Bryant Park, or which is a like a Beijing restaurant, or Hutong, which took over the uh, Le Cirque space in the Bloomberg building. Like these are very interesting to me in terms of the the new wave of restaurants that are opening. So Lucas has a take on this as well, which is uh, very interesting, and I wanted to highlight this on the show um, in terms of the first generation of Chinese restaurants that opened in America as, and how it was about survival and how people getting into the restaurant industry now as Chinese-American immigrants is a little bit different than before. The immigrants that are coming to the U.S. that are opening restaurants aren't the same as the original ones. Um, a little quick bit of history in terms of Chinese-American history is that most of the Chinese restaurants here in the U.S. today are built by immigrants who have no choice but to really cook. It's the easiest, uh, it's the most straightforward way to make a living and be a part of the United States. So that's why we have so many Chinese restaurants all over the place. Those uh, people who are who came to the U.S. had no choice but to open Chinese restaurants. The new immigrants from China to the U.S. aren't really the same type of people anymore. Those people that would have emigrated or immigrated to the U.S. are now more likely staying in China because there are more op economic opportunities. Back home in China. Right. Um, most people coming here to the U.S. are highly educated. Most of them already have degrees before they come into the United States. And when they open a restaurant, they're opening a restaurant with a mission, with a story. Mm. And they're also coming from different parts of China that aren't the same parts of China where all of the Chinese restaurant owners usually yeah. come from. So a lot of past Chinese restaurant owners came from the south, from the Canton region, from from uh, Fujian or whatnot. Yeah. Nowadays, um, they're coming from all over the place. Yeah. Some of my favorite chefs in the city who are cooking these this very refined regional cuisine and telling people pay attention to this specific part because this is my favorite part um, are, are all people like this. Um, Eric at 86, um, uh, Amelie at uh, Mala Project, really good examples. Hunan Slurp, all of these mostly East Village wonderful Chinese restaurants yeah. um, are very regionally specific. And they yeah. have reason to be to do so because they're from that region. Right. The, the next topic I wanted to tackle with Lucas and get his take on was the word authenticity. I think these days, too, there's just so many uh, quote-unquote ethnic restaurants, or whatever that means. And these ethnic restaurants are somehow, I feel like the word ethnic and authentic are kind of used uh, simultaneously. And I'm not quite sure if that's the right way or the wrong way. So, you know, like what does authenticity even mean in a, in, in, in a modern day and age? Is there authenticity? Is there originality? So I wanted just uh, Lucas's take on it. The controversy around authenticity is that basically a lot of people like to use the word authenticity as a as a substitute for the word ethnic. <laughs> it's like every time you yeah. say this food is so ethnic, 
you can also say this is that. so authentic, right? <laughs> like it's so much more ethnic than that. And it's interesting because you know at Junzi we have people coming into the restaurant telling me that the food is really authentic, right? And we have Chinese people telling me that we have Chinese Americans telling me that we have really these are the comments Western that they make. White people telling me that this food is so authentic, okay. and you're like. Who actually has the right to say that it's authentic? <laughs> you know, like what am I authentic to? That's a right. bigger question. For us at Junza, the the way we try to do it is it needs to be authentic to our style of cooking and our childhood. Like you can only really be authentic to yourself and what you're trying to do. Because if anything, I would think it's a little bit disingenuous to say I am cooking food that's authentic to all of China. I would never want to say that any of the food that we serve is supposed to be emblematic of. This whole cuisine, because we didn't want to represent. The whole point is to say there's so much more going on than you think. Yeah, this yeah, is yeah, a little yeah. part of it. This is like an introductory. Yeah, this is supposed to be the teaser, right? Yeah. I think nowadays uh, most New Yorkers, specifically, have gotten a better sense of um, what authenticity really means, and are starting to give uh, chefs credit when there's, when credit is due. Yeah, um, and not just say, oh, for example. This restaurant is emblematic of this whole cuisine. Yeah, you know, to say this chef is doing something special to their understanding of their cuisine. Yeah, and then put a name to the chef, you know, put a re- name to the restaurant and say, "Go here and experience this unique experience." Love that. Yeah. If there's anything that you can take away from this interview with Lucas is that he's very passionate about Chinese cuisine and his home country and where he's from. And it's so impressive and I respect him so much for it because I think that he's in it for the right reasons. Um, you know, his, his, his restaurant, Junzo Kitchen, is a very purpose, mission-driven restaurant, you know. And then to his point, I think that a lot of the younger generation chefs and people that are getting into the restaurant business who are immigrants are, are, are getting into it for different reasons. It's not, like you said, it's not just for survival. It's more so about storytelling and kind of preserving the legacy and continuing traditions and, and trying to share that with other people outside of their culture. Uh, that being said, Lucas proudly proclaims that Chinese food is the best in the world. So I asked him why. And this is his answer. I do believe it's true. It's definitely true for me. My favorite meals have always been Chinese meals. Um, I think with the diversity of Chinese food, I've always found myself to be delighted and surprised when I delve into some type of Chinese food that I don't know. Yeah. And as somebody who's trying to push Chinese food, I very gladly admit that I know tiny, yeah, tiny, tiny You're like tiny still constantly learning yeah. new and things. Every time I go back to China, even every time I walk around the East Village or Long Island City, you're just like, whoa, there's so much, there's so much going on and it's always going to be surprising and delightful. Yeah. and. Um, I think it's really worth spending time to really explore for everybody. Yeah. Because I think your own palate and your own sense of cuisine and whatnot will definitely expand um, just by virtue of diving a little bit deeper, diving a little bit deeper. That's it for episode two with Lucas Sin. Lucas, thank you so much, man, for being on the show and uh, diving deeper into the conversation about Chinese food and the cultural implications behind opening a Chinese restaurant. Uh, wish you all the success i'm a big fan and for those listening that haven't been i would highly recommend checking it out they currently have three locations the first at nyu downtown greenwich village second columbia university upper west side and third and last and the most recent near bryant park Uh, for more information you can visit their website jenza.kitchen again thank you lucas for being on the show and we'll see you next week i'm with one welcome